In this message loaded with historical information, we discover the authenticity of the Old and New Testament scriptures. The Bible is truly God's voice to us, preserved and given to us in a manner that we can understand, receive and live by. You know, God wants us to agree with him. God wants us to agree with him. Because when we agree with God, you know, there is power in agreement. When we agree with him on the way he sees things, then our life changes also. Our, we live our lives the way he wants us to live. And the way he wants us to live our life is the best life that you can think of. Right? God wants us to agree, come to that place of agreement. And one way of agreeing is when you speak, when you believe in your heart and when you speak. And you say, God, I agree. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 says, This book of law shall not depart from your mouth. Meaning, you speak the word. This book of law shall not depart from your mouth. That you may meditate on it day and night. And then you observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. So God has our good in mind. When he gives these instructions, when he lays out these precepts, he has our good in mind. And he says, this book of law shall not depart from your mouth. So to say what God says is to agree with him. To say what God says is to follow this instruction, the book of law not departing from our mouth. Amen? So Say what God says over your life. Say what God says over your family. Say what God says over your children, about your children, about your marriage, about your future, about your career. Say what God says. Right? And this book of law, let it not depart from our mouth. So can we all uh, hold the Bibles in our hands and, and say what God says and make this declaration. Let's all stand up. Lift our Bibles high, what you're holding in your hand, a piece of, uh, amazing piece of literature, full of power, transforming power, right? Through the ages, through the centuries, people try to destroy it, burn it, and completely eliminate it, but it stood the test of time. It's alive, it's powerful, it is the word, it is the truth. Amen. This is God's word. This is God speaking to me. I am who God says I am. I can do what God says I can do. I will become everything God has promised. I am saved, healed, delivered, redeemed. I am blessed, victorious, prosperous, triumphant. I'm a minister of God, a servant of Christ, and a channel of His blessing. To many people, I receive his word. I believe his word. And I live by his word. Christ is my master. And to him, I am in absolute surrender. In Jesus' name. Amen. Shake hands with the person next to you and say, speak the word of God. Say what God says. Just remind them. Amen. From last Sunday, we've been studying about uh, 
uh, we're doing, and we started an interesting series called uh, Reasons, right? Uh, many times we, we study about what we believe, and uh, no, these are the reasons. Study why do we believe what we believe in, right? So a very interesting series. Last Sunday we looked at the existence of God and why believe that God is God exists. When there is design, there is a designer. When there is creation, there is a logical uh, uh, conclusion is there is a creator. And we studied that. And so this Sunday, today, we're going to look at, um, you know, what we just lifted up right now, the Bible in many forms, right? The print, uh, printed form, electronic form, whatever. The Bible, we're going to look at it, it's authenticity and accuracy. It's authenticity and accuracy. Right? Um, sometimes we read the word and then we might have questions in the corner of our mind. No, is it real? How can I believe this? Yes, I need to accept it by faith, but are there reasons? Uh, is there any reason? Are there any, is there any rationale behind this? Can I believe it? Is it authentic? Is it valid? Is it accurate? We might have questions. And we're going to look at some of those reasons. It's not going to be a very in-depth thing, but we're going to look at what are the important reasons or some of the significant reasons that um, we could look at for its authenticity and accuracy. Now, the Bible, you know, we know it's a good book, but it's a very controversial book, right? Through the ages, people have respected it deeply, reverenced it, but at the same time, there have been some extreme reactions to the Bible. People wanted to burn it. People didn't want to have anything to do with it. They wanted to destroy it. In fact, in AD 303, the Roman emperor, Diocletian, you know, he sought to wipe out any trace of Christianity. He destroyed churches. He uh, burned churches. He ordered Christians to be executed and Bibles to be destroyed. He did that. And, um, and after that, Voltaire in the 1700s, a French writer and essayist, you know, he boasted, he said this, that in 100 years, he said this in 1700s, right? He said in 100 years, Christianity, Christianity there will be no trace of Christianity. And uh, the Bible will not be in existence. But what happened was after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and started printing Bible right from his house. They used it as a printing press for printing Bibles. So, so people have made comments. People have done something to destroy the Bible. Oh, um, and here's a quote from R.A. Torrey, uh, an American evangelist and writer, educator. He says, for 18 centuries, every engine of destruction that human science, philosophy, wit, reasoning, or brutality could bring to bear against a book has been brought to bear against that book to stamp it out of the world. But it has a mightier hold on the world today than ever before. If that were man's book, it would have been annihilated and forgotten hundreds of years ago. So what we're holding in our hands is a very interesting book, controversial uh, book, and it's good to see what the Bible says about itself. We start by looking at what does the Bible say about itself, right? And by the way, uh, how many of you like history here? Can I see your hands? History buffs? Okay, good. Uh, I think um, we, you, will be, you will definitely find it stimulating. There are a lot of events, places, and the rest of us, uh, 
they who endure till the end shall be saved. <laughs> right, but, but I, I just hope that it's definitely you know, a lot of information, uh, very interesting facts, and I uh, hope it sparks our curiosity to study even more, to research even more, right? Okay, so what does the Bible uh, say about itself? Let's go to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Um, it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by God's inspiration, inspiration of God, meaning that the Bible claims that it's divinely inspired, that it's inspired by God, that the contents which are there are not just man's imagination or creativity, but the contents which are there, the truth which is there has been inspired by God himself. That's the claim of the Bible. Second Peter 1 verse 20 uh, verse 21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So prophecy, the Bible is a prophetic book, and it talks about the future, it talks about the things to come, and he says here, Peter writes and he says that holy men of God, they spoke, they wrote as they were uh, moved along by the Holy Spirit. They they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible's claims, these are just two scriptures, but the Bible's claim is that it is divinely inspired. Right? We need to remember that. We need to understand that. Secondly, uh, let's look at when was the Bible written and what were the languages in which it was written. When was the Bible written? The Old Testament, um, the 39 books were written between 1400 BC and 400 BC, a period of 1000 years, 1400 BC to 400 BC, 1000 years, written in, written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay, the Aramaic uh, belonging to the region called Aram of ancient uh, Syria and Mesopotamia. And um, actually the Jews started using this Aramaic language because it was a language of commerce and it was used in the government as well. So they started using it uh, probably uh, after the Babylonian exile. What about the New Testament? All the New Testament books were written in Greek and uh, about 50 AD to 95 AD. So a period of just 45 years, the New Testament was written in Greek. Um, all, the, all the books were written in Greek. It's interesting to see how the Old Testament and the copies especially of the early New Testament books how they were given to us, how were they passed on over the years. So historians and Bible scholars say that the earlier copies of the New Testament and the Old Testament, books of the Old Testament, they were written laboriously by hand on papyrus. Papyrus, you know, uh, they stretched out in sheets uh, from the pith which is formed in the papyrus plant, the material which is made there. It, it was also in leather, it was also uh, from a material called vellum made from uh, animal skins. So they were laboriously handwritten and passed on. These manuscripts were passed on from generation to generation. Then after a period of time, they started folding it in half and stitching it in what was called the codex or the book. So it, it is a precursor to the, the book that we have now, the books that we have. So they started folding these sheets, stitching them, and started writing on them. Now, it's interesting to see that the scribes who actually wrote this by hand, right, they were very passionate about what they were doing. 
Now, if there was a mistake, if there was an error, what do you suppose they did? What we would do is maybe use a whitener, use an eraser, and then maybe tear the page off and write again. But not these scribes. They would destroy the entire scroll. They would destroy the entire scroll, which they had laboriously written by hand, and start writing another copy. Right? And sometimes you wonder, why did they do that? Why did they do that? They knew that they were writing something that was much bigger than them. They gave it that due importance. If there was error, they just destroyed it and started writing again. So when we look at these ancient uh, scrolls, manuscripts, a couple of things give it credential. One, of course, the content. But secondly, the time gap. When we say time gap, let's say an event happened on a certain date and it was recorded. Okay, let's say you were born in 1970 and there was a record made. There was a birth certificate, you know, certification of your birth, 1970. And after a period of time, let's say in um, 1980, there was a copy of it made. A copy, a manuscript of that made. Right? So 10 years have passed. In those 10 years, after those 10 years, there was a manuscript or a copy that was made. So that gap of 10 years of the actual record of the event and uh, the copies, the date, the date of that copy, that was called the time gap. So apart from the Bible, there were other ancient literature, other classics that we study, which had these manuscripts. And the historians, you know, uh, the papyrologist, an expert of studying uh, these scrolls, is able to exactly pinpoint within 25 to 50 years studying the handwriting, um, studying the material in which it was written, exactly pinpoint, okay, it was written in this time period. Okay, they're able to date the manuscript. Okay, so when we look at some of these manuscripts of the, the ancient literature, Plato, there are about 250 manuscripts that are known to exist. And the time gap, so when we say time gap, we're saying date or the period during which it was recorded and the period, the date of the earliest known copies of the manuscript, right? 1,300 to 1,600 years and so on. And um, um, especially the, there's, there's one which is not there in the table. Um, you remember Homer who wrote the book, um, who wrote um, this ancient literature, Iliad, you know, where you find uh, stories about the Trojan horse and so on. There are 643 known pieces of his work and the time gap is about 500 years. Okay. So let's look at the new, I'm sorry, let's look at the Old Testament. What about the number of manuscripts and what about the time gap? Okay. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, was written about 400 BC. 400 BC. And the oldest known copies initially were dated to 980. So 900 plus 400, 1,300 years time gap. Um, from after 400 BC, there were these Jewish scholars called the Masoretes, and they took, to them, took the responsibility of making copies, passing them on. There were also this group called the Sophorim, right? 
The meaning of this word sophirim is counters. Very interesting how they determine the accuracy of the scroll. They would count the number of letters. They would count the number of words. So let's say I'm making a copy. I would count the number of words and letters of the scroll of the original. And I would count the number of words and letters of the copy. And you know what happens if they don't match, right? The copy is destroyed and I start all over again. So they were painstakingly doing this. So I just wanted to try with, you know, Psalm 23. So I just, I just wanted to see, you know, how it would have felt, you know, Psalm 23 in my version of the Bible, uh, there are about 23 lines, six verses. There are about 117 words and 443 letters. I was just thankful that it was in Psalm 119, which has 176 words. In this, I had to go back because I, I lost count. You know, I was thinking of something else. I was thinking, hey, does it really matter if I count like this? And I just lost track and I had to go back again and write down, you know, every line, the number of letters of each line and then add it up. Just imagine, Psalm 119 has 176 verses. Six verses having 43, 443 letters, 176 verses there. Entire book of Psalms, the number of words, the number of letters, they counted each one of them. They destroyed the scroll which did not match up. Why did they go to great lengths to do that? Why did they go to that length to ensure that hey, what I'm passing on, what I'm giving, to the next generation, it needs to be true, needs to be accurate. Why did they do that? Just think about it. So they passed it on, but still there were questions. You know, 980 was the earliest known Old Testament manuscripts, 1,300 years, a lot could, can happen over 1,300 years. So people were questioning the accuracy of these manuscripts till in 1947, in uh, Qumran, in Palestine, they discovered what is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, near the Dead Sea, there were these caves, those cliffs uh, above Wadi Qumran. And there was this Bedouin goat herd, a nomadic Arab, who was actually searching for his goats. And um, he went into one of these caves and he found these containers, these jars, which were two feet high, and which had these leather scrolls, which were wrapped in linen. And when they, when they studied, they discovered more scrolls. They discovered, in fact, 800 such scrolls over there. And out of which 240, I think, were of um, biblical, um, biblical material, 230 of biblical material. And this contained all the books of the Old Testament except the book of Esther. All the books. And in fact, they had a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah. And when they compared with the, the earlier known manuscript, they said they saw that very ins insignificant or minor variations. So completely, which means that the book of Isaiah was you know, unchanged after more than 2,000 years. So they found this. Now suddenly the time gap reduced. They found that the date of these manuscripts was 100 BC or 200 BC. So the last book was written, Malachi, 400 BC. And 
earlier, the known manuscripts were 900 AD, just 1,300 years. And now they found that 400 BC, and you know, they found something in 200 BC. The time gap was hardly 150 years or 200 years. So then everybody was surprised. In fact, the Dead Sea Scroll discovery itself gives overwhelming evidence to the accuracy or the authenticity of the Bible. And you consider how it was transferred, how it was transmitted. Here are some facts uh, about the manuscript support. You know, when we say manuscript, we're talking about the copies of, um, you know, of the Old Testament or the New Testament. The oldest known Hebrew manuscripts now among the Dead Sea Scrolls date 200 BC, 100 to 200 BC. The oldest Greek version of the Old Testament is the Septuagint, translated into Greek by Jewish scholars, dated about 250 BC. And here are some, you know, nearly complete or in part nearly complete copies of the Old Testament. They are in Greek. Um, there's one called the Codex Vaticanus, and it is in the Vatican Library. There's another one called Codex Sinaiticus, which was discovered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it's now in the British Museum. Codex Alexandrinus, uh, dated about 400 AD, and that is also in the British Museum. What about the New Testament? Over 5,500 Greek manuscripts of all or part of the New Testament. 10,000 Latin manuscript of part or all of the New Testament. Over 9,300 early versions, manuscripts in other languages. So put together, almost 25,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament. Almost 10,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament. Now you go back to that table and you check and you see that Homer has about 643 manuscripts. And um, if you look at, uh, I think a couple of slides back, you go to Plato, Plato has about 250 manuscripts. And going by these manuscripts, uh, going by the credentials of the manuscripts, historians you come to the conclusion that this is unquestionably authentic. These works of history by Plato, by Homer, by the others, by, uh, by the other historians, unquestionably authentic. But this pales in comparison when you look at the manuscript support of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 10,000 manuscripts for the Old Testament, time gap of 150, 200 years. For the New Testament, over 24,000, almost 25,000 manuscripts, a time gap of 50 years. In fact, eminent Greek scholar F.J.A. Hort, he writes, and I quote, he says, apart from insignificant variations of grammar or spelling, not more than one thousandth part of the whole New Testament is affected by differences of reading. And the Lord Jesus, you know, he attested to the authority of the Old Testament scriptures in various places. If you recall Matthew chapter 4, he's being tempted by the devil. And uh, what does he say every time? He says, it is, it is written. Every time he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. And it is written, it is written. And every time he was quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament. Another place he says, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. 
again testifying to the book of Jonah and in another place he talks about um, he says not one jot or tittle of the old test of the law uh, shall pass away saying that you know the law it is there he is is putting a seal of approval on it and interestingly in a couple of uh, scripture that is Matthew 23:35 and Luke 24:44 he talks about uh, he mentions certain names he talks about prophets from Abel to Zechariah and he also says uh, you know these scriptures they testify of me and then he says the he he mentions the law of Moses he says the prophets and then the psalms so the entire old testament he authenticates it and this was held as scripture by the lord and by the jewish rabbis as well so we might say okay it's fine it's valid is authentic fine what about the contents are there not contradictions are there not errors in that factual historical errors don't they contradict with science or archaeology and so on let's look at them can we say that the bible is accurate or inerrant most of these arguments are in the area of contradiction and also you know about some difficult passages okay now this is the law of contradiction okay is everyone awake okay law of contradiction uh, in logical thinking it states that a thing cannot be both a and non a right at the same time and also it states that a difference which means that it concludes that a difference is not a contradiction now i might have breakfast let's say i have breakfast with james and john and i meet peter by lunch time and i tell peter peter you know what i had breakfast with james and john and by tea time i meet andrew and then i tell andrew andrew i had i had breakfast with james now the statement that i made with peter and the statement that i made with andrew are they different yes but they are true are they not they are different but they do not contradict each other they are true in certain places in the bible they are not contradicting each other but they are different so there is no contradiction over there and certain difficult passages when we actually look at the background the context the culture the history the language because we are looking at it through our filter of our day and time so when we look at it through the culture through the history uh, the history language and so on we find that the text explains itself of course you know uh, it'll be good if we can do more research on it but we'll stop here and what about the canon of scripture why not you know why 66 and no more when you look at the 39 books the jews held it as canon of scripture and just now we saw that the lord jesus himself quoted extensively from these books and um, luke chapter 24 and verse 44 that verse itself just covers the entire old testament what about the new testament new testament the early church held this as scripture these 20, 27 books so we see that just like the bible is divinely inspired the canonicity or the standard or the inclusion of these 66 books is also divinely inspired so the bible is not just another book as you as you can see genesis from revelation spans 1500 years 
written by about 40 authors, not just one, not two, 40 authors. And these people from three different continents, Asia, Africa, Europe. 1,500 years, 40 authors. When you compare the geography, three different continents. Now, they did not have internet, they did not have email. The mode of communication was very difficult. They did not check with one another. They lived in different time frames, different time periods. And yet, you see the same theme running throughout. You see the same theme running throughout about God being the source of it. You see the same theme. So when we look at the unity of the theme, it points to one source that God is the author. What about the historical and archaeological accuracy? You know, there are several events, several people, several places, which are real. And archaeology and secular historical records repeatedly confirm the precision of, the of these references. In fact, archaeologist um, Dr. Nelson Gluek, uh, they say that he was probably the, the greatest modern authority on Israeli architecture, uh, sorry, archaeology. He comments, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted, meaning, you know, disputed by reasoning, has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. That was his conclusion. What about its fulfilled prophecy? You know that there are hundreds of prophecies in, in the Old Testament which were fulfilled in the, in the New. And in fact, there are more than 300 prophecies which were fulfilled by the Lord Jesus' first coming. More than 300 prophecies. Now, there was this maths and astronomy professor, Peter Stoner, who was a skeptic of the Bible, and he wanted to test its prophetic accuracy. So he did a study. He took 48 uh, prophecies, and um, out of these 48, he considered eight of this, dealing with the Messiah coming to, uh, Messiah being born in Bethlehem, his persecution, uh, persecution attempts on his life, etc. And um, so he used the principles of probability, and this is what he came to, right? He says, the chance that any man might have lived and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one raised to the power of ten. Sorry, is, is ten raised to the power of seventeen. Yet the chance that any one man fulfilled all 48 prophecies is an astounding one in 10 raised to the power 157. That's the probability of such a thing happening. And he went on to test these prophecies. He went on to research them. At the end of it all, he was convicted by the truth that was staring at him. And he gave his life to Jesus. Peter Stoner, a skeptic, studied the prophecies, came to the conclusion that they were indeed fulfilled by the Lord Jesus. Its indestructibility, the fact that it was not destroyed through the ages, not destroyed through these years, even though many attempts were made to completely destroy 
the Bible. That itself shows that it's an amazing book. It's a unique book. What about its Christ-centeredness? All scripture points to Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ is at the center. That's the running theme throughout. He's being prophesied. We see his ministry and then towards the end about his second coming as well. In fact, the Lord Jesus says in John 5 and verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. The teachings of the Bible, powerful, timeless, though at times contrary to public opinion. At the same time, powerful, applying to all matters of life. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 17, 16 and 17, the verse we saw in the beginning, it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable or useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not just for ministry, for every good work. Everything that comes under the category of good work, the man of God, the woman of God, is complete, thoroughly equipped because of the scripture. And lastly, it's life-transforming power. Now, I'm sure you've read testimonies of the Gideon's Bible placed in maybe schools, colleges, and, uh, and um, you know, commonly in the, in the hotel rooms. And you've seen the life-changing power of the written word. People who wanted to take a drastic step, people who wanted to end their lives, is read maybe a verse, maybe a portion of scripture, and their destinies were changed. Their lives transformed completely. And you and I are actually can testify to that, are witnesses of that in our own lives. In our own lives. So we read about many people who are searching for the truth. Peter Stoner was one of them, searching for the truth, read the Bible. They were convicted, convinced. And their lives were transformed. People whose um, character was questionable, people who lived terrible lives, terrible lives, their lives transformed. Murderers. Saul was one of them. He had an encounter with the word, the living word, and his life were transformed. So what is the conclusion? just like to read from uh, the authorship of this passage is unknown um, of this writing but it's um, found in the Gideon's New Testament so I just like to read from that the Bible contains the mind of God the state of man the way of salvation the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers its doctrines are holy its precepts are binding its histories are true and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword and the Christian's charter. 
Here too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. The Bible, the Word of God, stands the test of time, testifies to its life-changing power. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says that it's living, it's powerful, it is sharper than a two-edged sword, convicting. When we are washed by the water of the word, we are refreshed. There's nothing that can produce faith in us but the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And when the Holy Spirit quickens the written word, when he makes it rhema for us, it is the sword of the spirit. It is a weapon which, with, with which you fight life's battles, with which you face challenges. The word of God. So the challenge and the question for us is, what place do we give this word? What place do we give this Bible in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own minds, for all of us? Do we esteem it lightly? What is the importance that we give it? What is the priority that we give this? It's not an ordinary book. It's come through the ages, painstakingly written. For what purpose? So that it might bring hope. So that the stories of change, so that the story of hope and God's love can continue to be shared. So that you and I as men and women of God can be equipped to do the work of ministry in all areas of life so that we can wage life's battles in faith with the word that he gives us, the word of God. Now, can we make a choice this morning? If there's someone here and you're thinking, you know, I have these questions, I have these questions about the Bible, and uh, you know, I used to think it was science fiction and, and so on, and I just wanted to tell you and urge you that it is indeed the word of God, which means the contents are true. And the invitation is, is for, for us today, this morning. And the invitation is just this, that we would come to Jesus, that we would experience his life-changing power, no matter what we are going through in life. That we would come to him, that we would turn over our life to him. That we would receive him as our Lord and Savior. Because the Lord Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So if you've been holding off that decision to give your life completely to him, can you do that this morning? It just involves acknowledging what he said. The Lord Jesus, he died on the cross. He took your sin. He took my sin. What was separating us from him? What would send us to an eternity apart from him, away from his presence, called hell. He took this upon himself. He destroyed this body of sin on the cross. 
so that we might receive salvation, so that we might have this fellowship with him. He loves you so much. There's no one who can love you the way he does. He has his compassion on you. He wants to be part of your life. And that invitation is for each one of us this morning. If you've not given your heart to the Lord Jesus, if you've not invited him into your life, can you do that this morning? He will change your life right side up. And you could pray a prayer like this. We just talk to him and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I believe that you took on the cross my sin, my shame, my pain, so that I could become your child, so that I could experience life. And I believe it is true. Come into my life. Change my life. I need you, Jesus. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I want to request you, invite you to meet with us here in front. We want to give you something. We want to give you the Bible. We want to pray with you. So don't go without meeting us if you've made that prayer. The rest of us, can we continue to pray? Let's just dedicate our lives, rededicate our lives. And say, Lord, I esteem your word. Thank you, God. I read it today in the comfort of my home when I'm on the move. But it was not so. People did not have the word. People died when they possessed a copy of the Bible. And today, even in many countries, you can't get into that country with the Bible. And you and I have the privilege of reading it in many versions. You and I have the privilege of going, walking into a shop and buying it. Can we just commit our hearts to him and say, God, I will give it the importance that it is due. I will acknowledge that it is indeed your word. Can we just open our mouths and pray to him this morning? Just talk to him. Yes, God. Yes, God. We make that choice not to be forgetful hearers of the word, but to be diligent doers of your word, God. Your words are spirit and they are life even as you testified, God. And we acknowledge that. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the lives of many people who died in preserving this word. We thank you, God, for those scribes who wrote painstakingly, God, who knew that they were part of a bigger purpose. Oh, God, we thank you for those lives. We thank you, oh, God, that we can read your word. As the psalmist says, more precious are your statutes than gold, more valuable than silver, God, because they are true, they are life-changing, and it is truth. We thank you. We thank you, Master. Lord, may your word continue to reign in us. Let your word continue to, Lord, dispel all the lies that the enemy speaks to us. Let strongholds come down in the name of Jesus. We thank you, God. We thank you. We thank you, Master. The Lord bless and keep you. 
the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Have a blessed week. Continue to read the word, meditate on it, and speak the word of God. Amen. Be blessed. We'll see you next Sunday. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.